Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. On today's show, we finally are going to be talking about a career in finance. This is something that has been requested quite a few times. So I'm really happy that we are going to be covering something in finance. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about investment banking. So an investment bank is nothing but a financial institution that helps other entities such as corporations and governments and even individuals to raise financial capital. So as an example, let's say there's a company that is looking to raise funds from the public and they decide to go in for an IPO or an initial public offering. Then in such a scenario, they might decide to hire an investment bank to help them manage this process and figure out various things, including at what price per share should they IPO so that they are able to maximize the amount of money that they're able to raise from this IPO. So that's an example of what an investment bank does. And of course, they do a number of other things such as mergers and acquisitions, helping companies raise debt and a number of other things. So that's sort of a very rough introduction to investment banking. And to really help us understand this area in detail and in layman's language, our guest on today's show is Arzan Raimalwala. And he is a part of the technology investment banking team at Deutsche Bank. And he's based here in San Francisco. Arzan has been working in this space for more than two years now. He started out in the financial institutions group at Deutsche Bank. He was based in New York. And then about a year ago, he switched over to technology. In terms of his background, Arzan has a Bachelor of Science in Accounting and Computer Information Systems from Indiana University. And then he also has an MBA with a concentration in finance from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Arzan worked as a consultant with Ernst & Young for about five years before his MBA. And then after his MBA, he switched over to investment banking. Arzan comes with a lot of great experience in this space. And as you'll see in the discussion, he's going to be sharing a lot of helpful details to really help us understand what working as an investment banker is all about. So I really hope you enjoy today's discussion. And without further ado, let's welcome Arzan to the show. Hey Arzan, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Hey Sonali, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. There's been a lot of requests for careers in finance, so I'm looking forward to this <laughs> one. Yeah. I'm surprised. I'm surprised you still have so much interest in finance, but that's a great thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that. And um, I do have a confession to make, which is that despite having an MBA and that too from a school which is known for finance, <laughs> I have zero, zero idea about finance. I'm not even kidding over here. So if I ask you silly questions, I apologize in advance. No worries at all. <laughs> So I wanted to start out with a little bit of a rapid fire before we get into the discussion. So are you ready? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. So in the last year or so, what is the earliest time that you got into office? Uh -huh. um, the earliest time was probably about 45 minutes after I left, um, which so would be around 
seven thirty, eight o'clock. So, so you left at seven fifteen a.m. from office, and then you came. Uh huh. Yep. And then you came. Um. Back. Yeah, I think that was probably the worst night I had, where I managed to go home only for forty five minutes, basically, taking half an hour nap, where I set three alarms at ten minute intervals um, to make sure that I. Don't fall into deep sleep and then take a quick shower and come back in for a meeting. Oh um, man, oh, yeah. Okay. I was preparing for all night. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So we should probably <laughs> talk more about that. Like, why would you stay in office till seven fifteen? Yeah. 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 And so, I guess so. My next question was, what is the minimum amount of sleep you've had in a night? I'm guessing that was the night. Um, yeah, there, there were definitely um, a few all nighters, especially my first year. So there's definitely been nights where I've gone without any real tangible sleep, apart from you know quick mm. naps. Mm, I see. And generally, what is the average amount of sleep you can get in a day? The average fluctuates. I think the one thing you will realize really quickly in investment banking, there's no such thing as average. It's a very um, lopsided lifestyle where things can be um, really crushing at one stage and then really quiet a little bit later. So things fluctuate a lot. But you know, if you try to make a career out of investment banking, then eventually you try to gravitate towards having a more balanced lifestyle and we're trying to get those average hours, six, eight hours of sleep that any normal human being needs. Yeah, it's just hard to sustain otherwise, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Although yeah. I do, I do have seniors who you know somehow manage to survive on you know four or five hours on a hmm. consistent basis. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I see. And then uh, the big question, which is that, what is the sort of typical range of bonus that you can expect as an associate in investment banking? Yeah, so the, the the range of bonuses fluctuate a lot as well. Um, they've improved a lot recently. Um, still nowhere near what they were pre-crisis, pre-2008, but much better than they were in the few years after the crisis. But typically, um, you can expect something in the range of 70 to 130% of your salary, depending on you know what kind of bank you're working at, what group you're in, and how well it's performing, and how your own performance was. Um, so it, it can be quite a wide range. Um, if it's anything under you know, 60-70% of your full year salary, then either the firm is going through a really bad stage or basically hinting at you that there's no future there. Right, right. So if you were to convert these percentages into dollar value? Yeah. So the way it usually works is that a first year associate comes in at about $125,000. And so your bonus would, you know, be about anywhere between 80,000 to 150,000. Got it. Um, yeah. And then it kind of increases from there about 20% per year for your three years as an associate. I see. I see. Okay. Now, this is interesting. And the reason I ask these questions is because, I mean, based, of course, on what I've heard from others in this industry, but investment banking is clearly, if you look at the working hours, it might seem very crazy to a lot of people. But then yeah. uh, it is also a place where you can learn a lot. You work really hard and the financial rewards are also fairly good compared to other it, industries. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. So it, it's, it's a very attractive um, option for people coming right out of school, whether it's out of undergrad or master's level business school. Um, mm-hmm. Because like you said, you know, you learn a lot, you make some really quick money, um, and then you reach a stage where you can evaluate whether this is something you want to keep doing for the long term or explore other exit options that you can go on to do other things yeah 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 all right so yeah so before we talk more about investment banking why don't you you know just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey so far sure yeah um i think you covered it pretty well um i grew up in the middle east in bahrain i'm originally from india came to the u.s to study uh, for undergrad and um, decided to stay on here after that um, i joined ernst young in chicago 
I did that for three years um, and then moved to New Zealand for a year just because I wanted to try something different and be in a different geography. And it was really when I was at EY where you know, I was working really long hours and not making as much money as I knew people in finance make, mm-hmm. um, which is what really um, kind of drew me towards considering an alternative career mm-hmm. and decided to go back to business school and Wharton being you know, a great finance school, decided to go there. And so, you know, I was really excited to come to Wharton, um, had a great two years, best decision I ever made. And yeah, since then, um, you know, I've made that switch into finance and been working at uh, Deutsche Bank for the last uh, two and a half years. Moved over to the Bay Area from New York last year. I thought a lot about between New York and San Francisco right out of school and felt that New York is, you know, the great finance city and definitely wanted to, you know, have that experience of working in New York. And so I did that for a couple of years, but eventually came out here to the Bay Area just because I've always been passionate about technology and focused in that space. And so felt this was the best place to be for that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I did want to touch upon and we'll, we'll do that, which is the, you know, what is the difference that you've seen having worked both in the financial institution side and now the technology side in investment banking? Uh, yeah. But before we do that, why don't you first, you know, give us an introduction to what is investment banking? Um, sure. Um, even though you said you don't really um, know much about finance, you, you know, explained it really well. It's basically providing companies, both big and small American and global companies with financial and strategic advice on corporate finance, bridging that with their overall company strategy. And so when you think about corporate finance, strategic advice, the main areas would be, you know, how to, how to be efficient with the capital and how to figure out, you know, where to allocate your capital, whether it's raising more capital through either equity or debt, or whether it's spending that capital on acquisitions or on other things like share buybacks or increasing dividends. So it's it's usually a combination of providing holistic advice on how to manage a company's capital and at the same time and holding them or walking them through transactions uh, when they have decided on what to do. And then of course, as a full service investment bank that Deutsche Bank is um, or any bulge bracket would be, we also have our own balance sheet um, and lend to companies. And so we do the credit underwriting process for that and help them with uh, with any leverage that they would need in terms of acquisitions or other requirements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, so you come from a consulting background yourself, right? So when you describe investment banking as very similar to financial advisory, right? Is it just very sophisticated financial consulting? Um, you can say that it's it's kind of a mix of financial consulting and providing credit to companies. You know, for example, um, we would have a client call us and be like, "We have this." situation we have this much debt what kind of a target we're looking for in terms of if we potentially buy something you know what should we do how would shareholders react just a good time you know for us to buy back our debt can you give us your thoughts and so then you know we put together materials um, to kind of give our thoughts on answering all those questions and you know that would be the advisory aspect you know where for example you know we may say that you know these are the benefits of raising debt to finance a transaction these are the benefits of raising equity these are how shareholders might react if you announce a transaction these are the reasons why you should consider you know these two three alternatives in time in terms of buying something or partnering with someone and things like that um, and then finally if they do decide to go ahead with something then you know we'd help them structure the transaction finance the transaction do the bidding go through the process the due diligence um, and all that kind of stuff 
I see. So, so what you're saying is that there is the advisory portion where you will say that okay, what are the pros and cons of maybe raising capital from the market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then, if the client decides to go ahead with it, then you're also structuring the transaction for them, which you might exactly. not find in a consulting yeah. firm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And they kind of go, you know, hand in hand in hand. Um, for example, if you're doing an IPO, one of the most important decisions you make in an IPO is when you actually go to market to sell the shares um, and get investor interest and, you know, go public with the filing. And so, you know, that takes a lot of experience and skill in terms of figuring out when is the best time to go to market, you know, what are the conditions, how are investors going to react to this particular issue and kind of, you know, walking through the client with that because many mm-hmm. times you have clients that, you know, really want to raise the money as soon as they can and price the highest level they want. But sometimes, you, you know, you can't have the best of both worlds, you know, getting the price you want and at the time you want it. And so, you know, it takes a lot of experience and understanding of the markets and, um, you know, having a year with investors and kind of passing on that kind of information to clients. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and you mentioned that Deutsche Bank is a bulge bracket bank. So what's a bulge bracket bank? Uh, yeah, so for anyone, you know, who starts looking into potential credit investment banking, that's the first one of the first uh, nuances that they'll come across is, you know, the, this kind of uh, delineation between bulge brackets and boutiques. Um, and bulge brackets are basically, you know, the more bigger, well-known family names like in the U.S., Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, uh, the bigger banks, you know, that have larger classes of analysts and associates and provide their own balance sheet in terms of lending to companies. So not only do they provide advice, but also the, the financing when a company does do a transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also do equity capital market stuff like IPOs and follow-ons and all that kind of stuff. And usually this requires a company not only to have an investment banking corporate finance unit, but also a sales and trading unit You know where they are actually dealing with um, equities and being able to sell different financial instruments, whether it's equity or debt. A boutique advisory, on the other hand, um, something like a Volus or an Evercore, is something that you know works strictly on advice itself um, and they'll help clients the advisory part that i explained as well as going through a transaction so they're more m a focused but they won't actually provide the financing um, and they definitely won't do any capital market stuff like ipos so when you say they don't provide financing you mean like you're able to actually give someone a loan exactly yeah okay so you know they would think of it like for example if you're buying a house Hmm. Um, if you were buying a house today on the mortgage, you'd have to go to a realtor to help you find the house and actually buy the house. And at the same time, you'd go to a mortgage lender to actually lend you the money, right? right. And so think of a bulge bracket as someone who's both the realtor and the bank providing the mortgage. Oh, They're great, both yeah. advising you on which house to buy, helping you go through the process to buy the house, and at the same time providing you the money. But a boutique would be you know, just the realtor. They wouldn't be doing the mortgage fees, they tell you, you know, go to Charles Schwab, go to Wells Fargo to get your mortgage, but they help you actually buy the house and figure out which house to buy. Yeah, no, no, that, that's an amazing analogy and that really simplifies things. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I think what will also be really helpful is that if you can give, like, you know, in, in very simple terms, an overview of the finance industry and, you know, where investment bank comes in or investment banking yeah. comes in. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so before you even get into a budget bracket and boutique, the bigger distinction in, in overall finance that anyone who's interested in this space would come across is the distinction between buy side and sell side. Sell side is basically where investment banking sits, and it's known as sell side because you're basically helping companies, you know, with either selling shares or representing companies on the private side. The buy side is known simply because it represents buyers, so that would be private equity firms, 
pension funds, hedge funds, any kind of institutional buyers where companies are actually buying firms directly and holding direct stakes in the companies that they acquire. Um, and so usually, you know, that's the broader distinction within the sell side than you have the investment banks. And within that, you obviously have different functions. I sit within the corporate finance function, um, and then you have the sales and trading function, you know, where you could be any kind of a role from dozens of different things. You know, it could be a derivatives trader, you know, back in 2008, you could have been structuring mortgage securities, which obviously still happens. So, you know, all kinds of different yeah. financial processing. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, this is helpful. So basically, I mean, in very simple terms, sell side is basically when you're trying to sell financial assets and buy side right. is when you're buying financial assets. Right. And because investment banking is on the sell side, not only are you helping them sell financial assets, but you're also advising them around the whole thing. Yeah, the whole process, exactly. Right. So like within investment banking, as you said, there's corporate finance and then there's sales and trading. It will be helpful if you can just like, you know, give us a few sort of lines on what is corporate finance within investment banking and what is sales and trading within investment banking? Yeah, so corporate finance is basically the stuff I do and that's traditionally known as investment banking and that's, you know, what I explained in terms of advisory um, and capital market stuff. It's basically, you know, advising companies on M&A, helping them go through the process um, and then doing IPOs and debt-related transactions, all kinds of capital markets transactions. Sales and trading, it's it's a very evolving Place at this point in time, um, especially because of Dodd Frank and all the changes that have come from that, and and that's the area that has been largely the trouble area for banks in terms of all the litigation and fees and fines and the the loss making that's hit their um, yeah. financial statements. Traditionally, sales and trading was divided between what was known as proprietary trading, trading where banks traded on their own books, and so it's like you buying stocks and bonds in the market. Banks would do the same thing for their own. Uh, balance sheet, they you know have their own portfolio of stocks and bonds, and then they would trade on behalf of other clients, and so that would be basically trading for other clients, and that also involves a lot of derivatives trading, and so helping companies with hedging, you know whether it's interest rate swaps or currency swaps. These are kind of technical terms, but they're basically you know just protecting yourself from fluctuations in interest rates or currencies, anything that you know has a potential fluctuation. For example, you know, if you're trading with a country in Europe and you're worried about the fluctuation in the exchange rate between euro and U.S. dollars and you want to hedge that and have a fixed rate, you know, then you'd go to a, a bank and the currency rate derivative desk would help you with that. Um, and so the proprietary trading is the piece that has been slowly going away um, in that the Volcker rule from Dodd-Frank has kind of made very difficult and onerous for banks to do. But the other part, which is doing trading on behalf of other clients, is still there um, okay. and will probably remain. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. So sales and trading is basically, I mean, for the most part, it's trading on behalf of your clients. Exactly. In a whole bunch of uh, different assets. Okay, got it. So then within your sort of traditional investment banking, are there specializations that you can have, various specializations? Yeah, so within investment banking, you usually get slotted into three kind of roles. One would be generalist, and that's usually seen more more often in boutiques um, where you're kind of, you know, at a small place. And so you focus on all industries and um, are not, you know, in a particular coverage group. And the second uh, thing would be being in a coverage group, which is more likely to happen at a bigger bulge bracket where you focus on a particular industry. So for example, I'm in the technology coverage group, and so I cover clients in the tech, tech industry. 
And the third would be being in the product group, which is also usually only in bulge brackets. And that's basically, you're not directly, you know, working in a particular industry, but you're focusing on a particular product. So you might be in an M&A group and only do M&A for companies in any industry, or you might be in equity capital markets and only do equity stuff like IPOs and follow-ons and things like that. I see. Okay. You know, I think at this point, it might be really helpful to talk about sort of, you know, what is sort of the typical project or a typical problem that you might work on, depending on whether you're working as a generalist, or if you're focused on an industry, or if you're focused on a product group. So let, let's take the example of uh, a company that is looking to IPO. So in yeah. that case, uh, so if they come to an investment banking firm, like they come to Deutsche Bank, um, yeah. because it's an IPO, they would be looking, they would be working with the product group then? which is Equity Capital Markets Group? Um, yes, I see your question. So basically, they would work always with the coverage banker initially. The coverage banker is the one who holds client relationships. Um, you may have heard the word pitching, um, which is where you actually go and have initial meetings with companies and try to win work from them. And that's always done by the coverage team. Um, and so it's a coverage banker that would you know build a relationship and bring in that kind of business. Product partners are brought in depending on, you know, what the conversation or the meeting is going to be about. And so, for example, I could have a client where my, since I'm in coverage, my MD is covering, let's say, you know, a particular client. If that client is considering going public, doing an IPO, then my MD will bring in the ECM MD. I see. Uh, by MD, I mean managing director, obviously. And if that company is looking to acquire another company, then my MD will bring in the M&A MD. And then, for example, if they are looking to, raise debt, then, you know, we'd bring in the leverage finance MD. Right. Um, so depending on what they're trying to do, different product partners would become involved. But there's always the coverage banker that holds the ultimate relationship because the same client will use multiple products and different products over a period of time. Right, right, right. Okay, no, this is, this is extremely helpful. So uh, yeah. basically, there's the coverage banker whose job is more to get the business through existing yeah. relationships or going out and building relationships. And then yeah. depending on whatever sort of the quote-unquote project or problem is, they bring in the product people who have the yep. expertise in various product areas. Yep. Yeah. Got it. And so, for example, at my level, you know, if we're working with a client to buy another company through debt, then, you know, my team will be working on both the part um, that is acquiring the company and the part that is getting through the credit process to give them a loan. And so for the credit process, you know, I would work with the Leffin team. And then for the M&A process, I'd work with the M&A team. And so sitting in coverage, one of the benefits is that you get to see everything and be involved in all aspects. And that's kind of why when I came into investment banking, I came into uh, coverage. Yeah, I yeah, know. This sounds very interesting. So then when you join, so post MBA, I'm guessing you join as an associate, right? Yep. Yep. So do you start to sort of choose whether coverage or a product area or whatever from the get-go or how does that work? Yeah, it depends. Um, so it, it's a little bit different at the analyst level and, the, and at the associate level, mostly because the analyst level tends to be more structured and the associate level recruiting is more through networking and meeting people. And so you kind of get to kind of learn more about what happens and position yourself for a particular group. At the analyst level, it's usually, as far as I know, the recruiting happens at the firm level. So you basically get an offer for the firm and they usually have a day where everyone kind of all the new hires pick what groups they want to be in and then the, the groups uh, pick what analysts they want and then they get matched. And then that sometimes happens at the associate level, but also sometimes associates mm -hmm. are just directly hired into a particular group that they've been interviewing for. 
Okay, okay, got it. And the the coverage group, which is the group that you're in, are the relationships maintained with the client across all levels, or you know, is it more depending on your seniority? Um, yeah, it is usually at several levels. Um, it can also depend from client to client. Generally, the bigger the client, the more senior the relationship is going to be. And so, for example, I worked on an M and A transaction for the best part of a year, actually probably for more than a year, where Ultimately, you know, working so closely with the client, I build, you know, direct one-on-one relationships with the engineer person um, at the finance team over there and pretty good working relationship with them. And then also a decent relationship, not a working one, but, you know, more just general relationship with the senior person. And so there's always relationships at every level. And the more demanding the project is, the more exposure the junior people will have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm very curious about how business is generated, right? So, like, for example, what I've seen in consulting is that a lot of business just comes through existing relationships. But let's say, for example, like you you took the example of an M&A project. So does the company already have a company in mind that they're looking to acquire or you help them figure out, okay, these are the companies that might be good for you to consider? Yeah, it really depends. So I would say there's basically... Um, three categories that you can put it into. Um, there's existing relationships where, you know, a company may have a banker that they depend on and they use that banker for the most part. The second would be where the company decides to do what's known as a bake-off, where they invite six, seven, eight, nine, however many banks they want to come and present. Um, and then they pick, you know, one, two, three, uh, whichever ones they want. And then the third is what I call ambulance chasing. It's basically you just, you know, go after companies cold call them and you know try to win business um and so i see all three happening um i you know i've been in cases where we've won work because of existing relationships and and the client trusts us um and then i've seen cases where i've worked in ipo where we had no pre-existing relationship at all where you know the company never used bankers before and then when we decided to go public they had a bake-off for the ipo and so we basically presented and won a role on that ipo and then the third is, you know, what is commonly known as pitching, where, you know, you just go to companies and try to get in front of the decision makers and try to win business from them. Yeah, yeah. And and generally, these relationships, are the relationships more with companies, big companies, let's say, like, uh, like Amazon or Microsoft or Google, who will typically be acquiring other companies? Or do you also have relationships with these smaller firms, uh, the so-called uh, unicorns? Well, not necessarily unicorns, but who might be good candidates for getting acquired. Yeah, totally, right? So it's basically, you have to basically try to pick them early so that you get in there early. And then when they get bigger, they remember that, you know, you were there for them when they were small. Yeah. And kind of, you know, that's how the trust builds. Usually for, so tech is kind of a very, very different space from everything else. Um, it's just a, It's just a whole different world out here. And, and and the bigger tech companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, they just have so much cash and such big teams that they are just capable of doing a lot of stuff on their own. They don't even need, you know, external advisors many times. Part of the fact that they have so much cash means that they rarely ever raise debt. You never, you know, That's Apple right. now does, which is one of the rare ones. But, you know, you, you rarely ever hear of Google going into the debt markets <laughs> to raise debt. And with the smaller companies... So basically with the smaller companies, usually the first stage that they would, you know, use investment banks is to get a line of credit. It's basically like you getting your first credit card 
for a smaller company getting their first line of credit where you know they can borrow money against that credit line is you know the first step and so being able to get onto that credit line mm-hmm. um you know puts you in position for bigger things later on whether you know they decide yeah. to sell themselves or go public and so you basically want to try and get in and have that relationship uh, as early on as possible no absolutely so how do you find these companies Um, So it's obviously a mix of things. Um, It's basically, you know, you have to stay on top of the industry and know, you know, what are the companies out there and kind of have dialogues with the, you know, with the people in those at those companies. So when you say early stage, in your parlance, what is early stage? So usually they are, you know, revenue generating. Usually in most industries, they would also be profitable, but in tech, that's not necessary. Uh, <laughs> so usually they are at least generating revenue and um, growing and, you know, they have established businesses. It also fluctuates from, you know, specific industries within tech. For example, semiconductor companies have a really, really long product cycle, you know, so it, it may take up to a decade for a new semiconductor company to actually be on its own two feet and have a product that's out in the market and selling. And so at early stage software or internet company might be something that's just two, three years old, growing insanely like an Uber or a Facebook. But an early stage semiconductor company might be something that's, you know, almost a decade old. So it, it, it depends a lot on, you know, what particular space within technology you're talking Right. And so, and so this is where someone like you who's focused on the technology industry has to be aware of these nuances across these different uh, verticals within tech. Exactly. exactly. Um, and a lot of time tech groups are structured that way where you focus on particular verticals. So analysts are usually generalist and sometimes junior associates can be generalists as well. But usually at higher levels, bankers are focused on particular sectors. So, you know, you'd be focused as you'd be a semiconductor banker or you'd be uh, internet media banker, you'd be a software banker, you'd be communications uh, banker. So as they go higher up, generally, uh, investment bankers tend to be focused on a niche sector within technology, mm. um, especially at the budget brackets. Um, and that way, you know, their experience and focus is all on that one sector. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so I think it'll be really helpful if you can take an example of any project that maybe you have worked on, um, you know, without disclosing anything confidential, uh, okay. and, and talk about what are the kind of things that you might work on during a project. Um, sure. Um, so let me think what's a good project. Yeah, most most of the things I would do would be the same on any project. So, you know, I can just speak generically. But basically, if I were to start right from the beginning, assuming that, you know, we're still in pitch mode, you'd basically, you know, the initial thing would be putting together a, a book for initial meeting or a bake-off, which can be a lot more intense. You know, if I give you the example for bake-off, uh, where you're presenting to a client to win a business, it's mm-hmm. usually one or two weeks of really grueling work um, where you're putting together the materials. And for example, I've had one bake-off where I had three all-nighters in a week. Three days out of that week, I basically didn't go home. Um, oh my and- God. Do you have some place to sleep in the office? <laughs> uh, yeah, so usually as the associate, sometimes I'm just dozing off <laughs> uh, on a chair behind my analyst while he's still thanking away. Um, but sometimes I think the analysts, depending on 
the situation and and the layout of their office can sometimes create makeshift beds or oh man uh, okay <laughs> i've heard of analysts having sleeping bags in the office and, oh okay um, sleeping bags in the office that's probably one of the reasons why the why a lot of the junior bankers also try to live really close to office um yeah. to their office so that you can quickly escape for a quick nap and come back um yeah, yeah. so that's not unheard of either makes sense uh, all right so you, so you had your uh, three all nighters in one week itself okay yeah uh, just, yeah just to give you an example of how intense the bake off can be because it's 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 a real cram job um, it's basically like studying for a finals the last week of the semester without having you know gone to class or done anything basically yeah. you know one week to like give the give those finals and and pass the class yeah. um and so i'm sure anyone would have gone through that experience in yeah, college yeah. and kind of <laughs> continue <laughs> having that experience yeah, yeah. in banking yeah and so you know after that if you are lucky and you won then that's where you start actually working on the project mm-hmm. if not then um you just go on to the next one but assuming that you do win then you usually have an initial organization meeting and usually if it's an M&A process it's only one bank so you would just you know basically it would be a lot more informal you'd be meeting with the client counterparts and starting off the work um if it's an IPO you usually would have multiple banks and so you'd have an org meeting where all the banks and lawyers and the client get together and that's where you kind of hash out the timeline for the project and the responsibilities and the next steps in an IPO there's a lot of regulatory work that goes into it um mm-hmm. and so basically you kind of hash out the timeline and you know what what the key milestones are and when they need to be achieved by and those would be things like filing with the SEC having a financial model ready and then the bankers doing the due diligence you know once that all that's done then going out to investors to sell the company and so as as the junior person you you're usually a lot of the work you're doing is preparing the materials for all these meetings and presentations and the financial model and things like that if it's an M&A project if you're representing the seller then you usually would set up a data room where you upload all the client's financials and documents so that other potential buyers can you know go through those things if you're on a buyer's side then you'd be the person who's going into the data room pulling all the information mm. building the model and coming up with the foundation for the valuation and in an M&A project there's no limit to what kind of analysis you can do it all depends on you know what your senior banker wants to see um or what the client wants to see running all kinds of scenarios assuming you're making all kinds of different assumptions and and so there's a lot of financial modeling involved in that case and so yeah so you know that those processes can last anywhere from a couple months to more than one year it kind of you know just goes on and usually you're working on more than one project at the same time so usually you'd be working on anywhere from 2 3 to 5 6 7 projects and then you kind of just have to juggle your time between those and prioritize so things can get intense if you're working on too many things at once yeah so you so one single associate or an analyst can work on 2 3 4 5 up till 7 projects at a time oh yeah totally and it it can it fluctuates a lot is um usually so there's the concept of a staffer and that's basically a a mid level banker um a vp or director who's responsible for staffing analysts and associates on different projects and they are basically responsible for making sure that no one has to do anything so they plate at the same time i see but you know it, it can happen where things just kind of blow up and you know things that were kind of dormant for a while suddenly come back from nowhere and f- to give you an example in my first summer i was working on a, a europe ipo 
and uh, Hong Kong M&A deal. And then I had my uh, U.S. stuff going on over here. And so just the nature of working on cross-border stuff and stuff outside of the U.S., the time differences, I was basically working nonstop because the time difference made it so that even at night, even if I was sleeping, the work was actually still going on. And I would have calls with Hong Kong at 11 p.m. on, you know, almost not daily basis, but at least two, three times a week. And so pretty much never... My day was never done before midnight, just from that perspective. Yeah. And then working with people in Europe, by the time I'm getting up at 7, 8 a.m., they've already gone through half the hour day. Um, and so by the time I get into the office, I have a whole inbox of emails already waiting for me. <laughs> um, and so it can get pretty intense, you know, just by such coincidences and working on uh, international stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is this the reason you would say that investment bankers have such crazy hours because you're working on so many things at the same time? Yeah, there's not really one reason. Um, I think one of them is that they're working on too many things. There can also be inefficiencies that kind of create more work than there needs to be sometimes. So that can play into it as well. And I think I think the main reason is that investment banking is just really competitive. And there's just so many banks buying for the same business that everyone is you know trying to put their best foot forward and so it becomes a demanding job just from the fact that you're trying to provide the best possible service and work yeah. to the clients yeah but yeah i mean it's it's it's, it's an industry full of a type people so <laughs> uh and perfectionists so yeah it, it definitely is pretty demanding no absolutely and and the book that you mentioned that you prepare for the pitch generally how how big is it um, so it can depend. Um, it all depends on the senior banker and how, you know, what their practice usually is. But I'll say on average, maybe like 20, 30 pages. I see. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's the other interesting point that you brought up that a lot of the work that you do is really dependent on the senior banker who's driving it. And so exactly. it's not the same thing that you can do over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you know, like if you're in investment banking, you'll see MDs that go into meetings um, without any books and are very comfortable just talking. And then you'll see others that, you know, rely a lot on actual materials and will, um, you know, want a lot of stuff on paper. Yeah. Um, and so the junior experience can also be very different, not only from bank to bank or team to team, but simply between, you know, working for two different senior bankers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, Arzan, uh, th- this gives us a really good idea about just sort of life as an investment banker and what it is. Uh, yeah. Now, I think it'll be interesting if you can just tell us a little bit about, you know, on a day-to-day basis, what are the kind of things that you would be sort of uh, working on, n- not working on, but the kind of issues or problems that you might run into? Yeah, I guess um, I would say the most stressful situations would be when clients have requests that are ASAP requests. And you need to pull stuff on the fly and, you know, do some quick faculty envelope math. Or in cases where you're working on a very hectic M&A transaction and you're getting close to a bidding date or, you know, you're running really intense models and you're just getting fired with questions left and right. You know, tell me, you know, run this real quick and tell me what you get. Run this, mm-hmm. run this, run that mm-hmm. from five different people. And, you know, you can only, only one person can be in a file at one time making changes and you'd have like two, three people hovering on top of each other trying to, you know, work out stuff oh, as no. possible yeah, with yeah. senior people or clients on the phone, you know, demanding answers. And so stress levels can get really high at times. Um, and you just have to be capable of handling it and not taking things too personally or too close to mm-hmm. your chest. People can get stressed out and take it out on others. And you have to be 
certain kind of person to be able to deal with that yeah no this is this is very very helpful because i think the day to day life is what is ultimately that's what you have to deal with right like as opposed to the high level problem which might sound very fancy from the outside um, yeah exactly i would say on on a on a general level on the corporate finance side day to day life is pretty slow um unless you're actively in the middle of a very active deal hmm. but generally i would come in catch up on the news read you know whatever relevant articles or information out there that is relevant to my space um and then depending on you know whether there are any meetings that day i would attend those if not then whatever deliverables we have coming up in the next few days you know check in with the analyst where those things are going i would you know help them with anything they're stuck on help them with doing research reading financial statements industry reports analyst research um and pulling the information we need checking their work going through models making sure that the numbers are right going through the actual presentation materials to make sure everything is the way it's supposed to be um and things like that so it's not you know super stressful and then if i'm working on something that's super live then that's when it can get really stressful where you know you have things work going on at a much more fast pace yeah 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 you know there is this perception in investment banking as an outsider that facetime matters a lot is that true and yeah, what are your thoughts on this oh uh, yeah that's a good question i think um i think it's changing a lot it doesn't matter as much as it used to especially in the us and i think the industry has recognized that you know they're competing with tech and consulting and other industries that are trying to you know chase the same talent so it's definitely improving a lot but at the same time it's also you know just the nature of the industry where you can't really avoid it to a whole extent and partly because the job of a senior banker is really to bring business and that means spending a lot of time with clients and so for example if i have a meeting next week and we're working on materials for that my senior banker you know he may be traveling for a meeting and not get a chance to look at materials till later in the evening or not even next week let's say there is like you know meeting two days from now and he may not get a chance to look at something till sometime late afternoon and that means now he's you know got his comments to us around Five o'clock, six o'clock, and we need to turn them in the next twenty-four hours. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you end up having a long day just by the nature of the business, where you know you could have got stuff done much earlier, but you know you just didn't. Ha- your senior didn't have a chance to get right. to it. So that doesn't mean that you can just show up to the office at five p.m. You would still have to sit there all day, and you know, kind of do other things or read or do research or whatever. usually you have other things to work on as well but you know if you don't then it doesn't mean you can just show up at 5 pm so i don't think there's a whole lot of where people are sitting around because they have to show their face but there is definitely at the same time sitting around where you know you're just waiting to hear back from other people because mm-hmm. they are busy with other things yeah 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 absolutely okay and just one more thing on this which is that you know lately investment banking has received a little bit of a bad rap in the media right that it is very yeah. stressful and all that so like so what are your thoughts on that like you're you're in there in the thick and thin of <laughs> things right so what are your thoughts yeah, on that yeah it's pretty funny i thought deutsche bank would become a household name where <laughs> everyone from the mom um <laughs> knows about it so it's it's really the kind of news you want to hear i mean it is what it is it's nothing that you know you can really do anything about i think ultimately you realize that you're in this job for a particular reasons that doesn't really have much to do with you know what is happening with the industry overall and industries go through cycles when i was in undergrad early on that's when the whole or right before i 
went to undergrad. That's when the whole Enron scandal broke out and took down Arthur Anderson and accounting firms were in a lot of trouble. They eventually came out of it and are doing great now. And so industries go through cycles. Technology had the same thing. They had the dot-com bust and now it's the hottest thing ever. So these fluctuations happen and yeah. you just have to be aware of that. Um, it doesn't hit us directly as much. My day-to-day job has nothing to do with you know a lot of these problems. Um, and so it's I guess it's a bigger headache for higher up people who are <laughs> actually running the bank as opposed to someone like me sitting in tech banking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, in your opinion, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working in investment banking? Uh, I'll say the most interesting thing is, first of all, you get to cover a lot of different cool, interesting companies and work with people at these companies. And so you get a lot of exposure. You get exposure to a lot of seniority that you wouldn't, I think, anywhere else. There's very few places that you can you know, be attending meetings with CEOs and board of directors right out of college or business school. And so you get a really good exposure right off the bat. And then it's a really dynamic job. The stressful part is something that some people can't handle and then other people enjoy. And I'll say I'm somewhere in between where, you know, if, if things are too slow, then I get bored really fast. So I kind of like having, you know, some of that intensity. And then at the same time, it's good balance between doing quantitative financial modeling and strategic advisory work. Um, and so kind of, you know, leveraging a lot of what we learn in business school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think you've touched a lot upon stuff that's challenging, which is primarily sort of the the sort of last minute stressful situations that might crop up. But is there anything that you just do not like about this space? Uh, Anything that I do not like? Probably have a lot more answers if you asked me 10 years ago. (laughs) But um, things have changed a lot and, and for the better. So there's nothing really that I can think of that I don't like strongly. I think, I guess, I, the one thing is the unpredictability. So the nature of the work me and, and the fact that, you know, we are so dedicated to our clients means that things can come up very randomly and it's hard to plan around it. And so I could have a vacation planned out three months from now and something could come up where, you know, I would have to cancel or change my plans oh, um, and have no control over it. So not only vacations, but even weekends are kind of hard to plan around because you never know when work comes up. It's not the kind of job where, you know, you can switch off and not be troubled by anyone. You kind of always are expected to be accessible and available. And so overall, people are really understanding and try to make sure that everyone has, you know, a good work-life balance. But at the same time, things can come up. And I think not being able to plan is the only thing that is kind of challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are there any common mistakes that you've seen people often make? in this role, maybe when they're early on in their careers? Coming in for the wrong reasons would be the biggest mistake. So what's uh, the wrong reason? Yeah, I think it's it's a very difficult job and it's not for everyone. So I think it's really important. It's one thing hearing about it, but it's really important to visual, visualize yourself doing it. And especially as an analyst straight out of school, your first year can be pretty brutal where you don't have much personal life and it pays rewards in the long term and you learn a lot. But it's not for everyone. And so you have to really enjoy spending a lot of time in Excel and doing modeling and doing research, reading financial statements. And so a lot of the things you hear about investment banking would be the glamorous things that MDs do, you know, traveling and meeting clients and all that kind of stuff. But at the junior level, especially at the analyst level, it's a lot of hard work. And so you have to come in with the right attitude, I think. It's not a hard job. Anyone can learn it and do well. 
some take longer than others. But if you don't have a good attitude and if you're not coming in for the right reasons, then mm-hmm. you're going to struggle. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's actually very good advice. And I'm guessing an internship is the best way to test the waters, right? Yeah, exactly. That's definitely yeah. the best way. Although sometimes internships can be a little misleading because obviously the bank is in sell mode and they want to <laughs> you know, get the best candidates and, yeah. and make sure they have a good experience. But you can still observe, you know, how the full-timers and, you know, talk to them and get a feel for it. So, yeah, there's no better way, obviously, than interning. Yeah. And can you briefly touch upon the hierarchy in a typical investment bank? Yeah. So, there's basically um, analysts that are straight out of undergrad. Then there's associates Hmm. for the next level. Then there are VPs, vice presidents, and then directors. And then finally, managing directors or, in the case of private firms, partners. And the managing director is usually... And the directors usually do most of the client-facing work. And VPs and associates also do a lot of client-facing, but also a lot of the actual execution. And then the analysts, I would say, would be about 80% execution. Right, right. And generally, you know, if you were to look at from analyst to an MD, how long yeah. is that typical in terms of time? Um, it can be anywhere from 10 to 15 years, usually. Okay. okay. So usually the, the, the pace to VP or even to director is pretty standard and structured. And then it's really the jump from VP to director and then director to MD that depend on, you know, how well you yeah. are doing and how uh, how much business you're bringing in. Right, right, right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Arjan. So I just have some like last few questions to help people who, who might be interested in exploring investment banking as a career. Yeah. So in your opinion, what kind of person do you think would really thrive in this industry? Um. So it attracts a lot of A-type people, but I don't think that's necessary. I would say that you basically, like I said, have to have a really good attitude and you have to enjoy numbers, especially as an analyst. You have to enjoy spending a lot of time in Excel and PowerPoint and being humble and being able to do research. And I think the soft skills and you know the, the networking with clients and stuff, that comes much later. So for people who expect that early on, it wouldn't be the right place to come for people who are you know willing to work hard it's a great place to go i mean so, so you said humble is that really true because i met so many <laughs> <bankers or not. laughs> well, well when i say humble is because there's a lot of crappy work as well especially our generation i, I think straight out of school sometimes you know people can have lofted expectations in terms of how what kind of work they'll do investment banking early on i think most jobs out of business school early on you're not working at a tech company. You're not writing the next billion-dollar software. So I think some people may want to do that and can do that. But, you know, investment banking is a more traditional business where being at the bottom of the hierarchy, you're kind of doing the kind of stuff that no one else wants to do. And so you have to be willing to do that. I think and that's where the humility comes in. Because it's more of a traditional industry than, you know, the new yeah, tech stuff. Yeah, No, no, that's a good point. Although, yeah, I, I've met many investment bankers who I won't really describe as being humble. <laughs> yeah. You, I guess the humility is lost eventually. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think the networking piece is a really good point. And do, do you think that you have to be more extroverted than introverted? No, I mean, overall, um, my overall philosophy in life, I would say, is that you can do well at anything, no matter what, whether you're introverted or extroverted. So that wouldn't be specific to investment banking. I think, I don't think there's any job that you really need to be either one or the other. Uh, You do have to be comfortable speaking in front of other people and presenting your ideas. But honestly, I mean, 
I think you would have to have that skill set for anything coming out of business school. It may take more effort for others, for some than others, but I don't think being an introvert holds you back in any way. Yeah, and uh, the best investment bankers, what do you see them do differently? Um, the best investment bankers, I say, are at the junior level, I would say they take the extra effort to anticipate you know, what, what their senior is going to look for, what they want, and kind of manage upwards. And whether it's being prepared with stuff before it's even asked for or doing work diligently and accurately with few mistakes. And at the senior level, the best bankers are basically the ones, you know, that are able to win, you know, the most business from companies. And that really comes down to building good relationships with the decision makers of the companies and being, you know, able to generate business and have a team that's willing to work hard for them. Absolutely. And so if someone is looking to learn more about this space or is, is, you know, interviews are coming up, are there any resources that you found helpful for budding investment bankers? Uh, Google. <laughs> Best resource for any questions you have. Yeah. Uh, but on a serious note, I would say there are a few websites. There's Wall Street Oasis. And then I think there's mergers and acquisitions. I think those two are pretty popular websites for okay. people looking to come in. Um, if you're in school, if you're in business school, then um, the career center is obviously the best resource. Usually, investment banking recruiting involves target schools where you know they would come on campus and recruit, and so that makes life really easy. If your school's not a target school, then it really comes down to cold calling and networking, and it's kind of playing the MD role really early on, where it's kind of just trying to get in touch with alumni who are in the industry and trying to set up time to talk to them and sending your resume and going from there. Yeah, so actually that's a great point. And if you are in, you know, in a school where a bank is not coming in and you're cold calling, how can you stand out? Because I'm sure everyone is receiving a bunch of requests from many students. Yeah, I, I would say the first thing is don't make mistakes. You'll be surprised about how many careless mistakes you see even in emails and things like that. Like what kind of um, mistakes? Uh, just typos and... Okay getting the time wrong for what time the call is supposed to be or things like that. Um, (laughs) And I mean, it's understandable that a lot of them are still, you know, barely 20 years old. But I think if you want to stand out, you want to show professionalism right off the bat. And that helps a lot. And then also showing real interest and being persistent. I think people in, in investment banking and pretty much in any industry are obviously pretty busy people. And so... It's easy to get dejected when you don't get responses, but usually it's not because the person is ignoring you. It's more likely because they're just really busy. And so I think being persistent stands out because that shows that you're really interested. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't think we need to get into business school recruiting because that is fairly structured. So if someone is in business school, they can figure that out. But yeah. But do investment banks recruit from outside schools also? Um, yeah, they do. They do lateral recruiting. Um, it's generally from other banks and pretty tough to change careers without going to school. But usually it's possible if you know, you're know you just a year out of school. I've seen it happen where you would basically come in as a first year analyst. That would you know, be very ad hoc um, and dependent on kind of you know just getting in touch with the bank's HR or networking with an alumni and dropping in your resume and, and trying to go from there. But it does happen occasionally. It's not that common, but it's not uncommon okay. as well. Okay, but but then you will start at the bottom if you're switching. Yeah, you industries. will. Yeah, okay. um, it, I mean, 
So analyst programs usually are two to three years. And so, you know, if you've come out of school and done something else that's, you know, sort of related, not very related, it's not a big deal to restart from the bottom because nonetheless, in two years or three years, you'll be an associate anyway. And given that investment banking is so structured compared to maybe some other, you know, if you were to just go and work at, you know, for example, GE corporate finance, you know, you're not guaranteed like three promotions in the next five years like you are in investment banking. So even if you lose a year, it's not really or in the long run going to hurt you much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. All right. Thanks a lot, Arzan. This was really, really helpful. Is there any other sort of parting advice that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh. No, not really. I mean, I think I've <laughs> I've given all the advice I probably can. Um, but, you know, I think overall, I would say, you know, always, if you're recruiting in banking or anything else, whoever you meet, ask a lot of questions, try to, you know, get a feel for the work environment. I've always, I've always said this in internet banking, the people you work with are more your family than your real family, because you see them way more mm-hmm. than you probably see anyone else. It's it's really important to make sure that, you know, it's the right decision and you're going to the right place. So always try to meet as many people as you can if you're recruiting and get to know them before you go there. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot. And thank you. Thank yeah. you for the time. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. So that was Arzan on investment banking. I really hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and found it helpful. I, for one, definitely feel a little bit more intelligent today because I think I finally understand what investment bankers do. I never did. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And of course, if you have any questions at all for Arzan or for me, you can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com. And you can also tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. You can also find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash learn, educate, discover. And in fact, if you like the page, you'll start getting the updates on all the great content that we are putting together for you guys. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can simply subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. You can search for learn, educate, discover, and then you'll find us and then you can hit subscribe. And of course, while you're at it, leave us a review. It honestly takes only a minute and it means a lot. So please do leave a review. And yes, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next one, take care and be well.